This is Our American Stories. And on this show, we talk about everything from music to sports to history and particularly relationships, which are really important to us, and parenting. And today we're talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job, get this, as coaching parents. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients as Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for a whopping 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And we're going to call you Dr. Rose because your patients do. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, you bet. You know, one of my favorite shows in my brides is Modern Family because I think what it gets right is there are just so many types of families now. And that's just the reality. And my mom was essentially raised by her grandmother because her mom was busy working to support the kids. The father had left the scene. And let's talk today about uh, a different type of mom because there are many different types of moms. Sometimes the mom isn't present. Mom could have died. Mom could have been in prison. Mom could have just left the scene, or mom is just not present. Uh, talk about the, this latest story that we're going to dig into today. Well, um, I have a patient that I've been seeing for over a year, and she uh, was in third grade when she started seeing me. She is very, very charming, throws a smile like you can't believe, but she was said to be cognitively impaired. In other words, she's just not smart enough. That's what they wanted to say about this young lady in school. She didn't know how to read. She didn't know how to do math. Poor girl hardly knew how to do anything at school. She just couldn't do a thing. But she could smile nice, and she would charm anybody into doing whatever she needed to do and say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Well, great-grandmother was a person that was raising her. Her mom had uh, left her when she was very, very young and left her with her grandma. Her grandma was a person who had to take care of the rest of the home, uh, and she's a nurse, and she works uh, two jobs, and her husband uh, was, had a whole bunch of medical conditions and, and had uh, psychological conditions as well so that she had her hands full. And so she delivered the, chi- the, the child to the great-grandmother. And so this was one big unit, uh, the mom who's going in and out of the home, the grandmother who is a, a, a present figure in the sense of she's, she's there, but she's always absent because she is the financial, she's at, essentially the dad. And now the great-grandma is raising a child two generations down. So this girl uh, was not behaving well at home, and she wasn't doing what she was told to do, obviously, Uh, and she would not tidy up her room at all and looked like she couldn't even do things with her hands, and and they were afraid that she was disabled. They were looking to to complete disability uh, application for her uh, because, well, she's just not going to get anywhere in life, poor thing. The school also uh, agreed that this young girl had problems at school, uh, and and intellectually, so I took a nice uh, one of those uh, sort of New England or or Noah Webster's uh, primer, 
and started opening it up. And I said, this is how you read. And so we started from scratch. I was able to assess that even though this young girl was in third grade, she was reading at the level of a first grader. Uh, but she could write kind of nicely if she set her mind to it. And I took this time in the office to make sure that I knew where she was coming from. And then I made her do some things uh, with, with her hands, and then I was able to see, oh, she, she has good uh, fine and, and gross motor skills. I don't see any problems with how she's able to do things. So I said, uh, Mom, uh, and I said, I'm going to call you Mom from now on because it's great-grandmother. That's just too long, and, and really you're acting like the mom. Uh, I don't see that there's anything wrong with her. I think that we've just left her as a first grader, and we've kind of, I might have to call you the, the charming scammer. Uh, but I don't know that there's anything wrong. She's just very comfortable in being more like a six-year-old than a nine-year-old. And uh, let me put her, we have a, a, private, pro, a private tutoring program that we, we have through the clinic. It's it's uh, it's completely a gift to the community. It's done through a small church. We accept about 25 uh, kids, and those kids uh, are tutored in, in turn by high school students, uh, sort of senior and, and junior years, that come in and they do a one-on-one -on -one tutoring program, and it's only once a week. I said to my daughter, Hannah, Hannah, this young girl needs your attention one-on-one. One she needs to be retaught how to learn, and I want you to go through the Noah Webster's Primer with her so you can teach her how to, how to read. Once she starts reading, she's going to get her self-confidence up, and she won't be um, bullied and made fun of in school. And once that happens, she will start turning into a different girl. Well, uh, we had to see what was going to happen in the next few weeks, and that's, that's pretty much what my daughter was able to do through the tutoring program. Well, let's uh, hold it right there, because what's going to be interesting is what happens afterwards. We've got a great-grandmother acting as the mother. We've got this sweet, charming kid who, in a sense, isn't getting ahead, but not, might not be getting ahead because no one's pushing her, and she's, as you put it, a charmer, and possibly even, and we know kids are capable of this, so I'm not going to say this pejoratively, but kids can be scam artists. And uh, unless you hold them accountable, they're going to do as little as possible, some kids. And so when we come back on the other side of this break, we're going to find out what Dr. Rose did with this charming young girl, and by the way, her daughter, and how Dr. Rose coached this great-grandmother-turned-mom uh, into a mom and how she made her a better mom. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Dr. Rose, more about this young, young girl. And I, I just see that sweet smile because I got to tell you, my little girl has the ability to scam, and she is a master, and we have always got to watch ourselves. And I love her dearly. I love you, Reagan, but you know what we're talking about. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Dr. Rose, which we love to do. 
regularly here on Our American Stories because we love telling the stories of parents and their kids. And parents aren't always mom and dad. Sometimes they're grandma, granddad, an uncle, a great aunt, a great grandmother. In this particular case, it's a great grandmother. And let's pick up what we left off with this charming, as we would almost want to call her, a little bit of a, a scammer. A good kid who people had misdiagnosed. And by the way, this happens all the time, Dr. Rose. School systems just routinely get it wrong. And I don't want to throw them under the bus because they've got so many problems. But I think more often than not, they just tend to categorize people, take that quick snapshot, and they just don't have the time, nor do they have the tools to really figure out what's going on in these kids' lives. That's right. And and. Part of the problem is that we don't have a go-to person. We don't have somebody to fall back on that will become a, our source of, uh, of common sense. And we have to, and with all of this, that's what I want parents to remember, is that we need stability and common sense. Even when it's a very unstable, uh, difficult world, we need to have one person we can go back to and say, Aunt Peggy, uh, Grandma, what what would you do? What 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 did I do when this happened? What had, did you handle this? And so remember that, uh, so that you have that source. And if you don't have that source, perhaps a church, perhaps a neighbor that you can count on. But we all have that one person who's looking at us and would want to perhaps lend a hand, but they're they're afraid that you might brush them off. And conversely, grandma and neighbor. If you see a mom who's struggling and you can offer some word of advice, then in a loving way, in a patient way, offer that. You will see how that will flourish. Just bring them over maybe a quiche or a a dinner or a a dessert. Show that you care. And that'll that'll open a door. That'll start things. And don't come in right away giving your advice, obviously. Get in there. Get the trust first. And then the advice can actually flow. Let's find out now what happens next with this young girl, your daughter. What, what happens next, Dr. Rose? So Hannah, my daughter, dedicated herself for weeks on end to this young lady until she comes back one day and she says, Mom, she's got it. She's done with the book. And this was like three months later. And I said, but the book goes through all of first grade. How can she have all of the book done? Yeah, I had to give her to somebody else because she knows the book by heart now. And if I open it to a certain page, she knows what the words are even before you open it. And I, and I was in disbelief. I said, there's no way that that girl, from not being able to read almost at a first grade level, is able to finish that whole book. And now she's able to process the, the words and understand them as she's reading. But she did. I went into the tutoring program, and I said, oh, I, I need you to read for me, and she was reading pretty well. And so the next time, and I figured, okay, well, I probably won't have much to do at home anymore. Uh, so when great-grandma comes in, I'll just ask her whether we should, you know, stop the, the, the coaching classes and whether we're okay now. Uh, but grandma, great-grandma came in, and she says, well, she's doing better in school, and I'm not hearing from anything at school, but we're having lots of problems at home. And she told me that she was having problems where this young lady is now being very, very sneaky. She would, where are these things? Mm -hmm. And what would happen was that she would say, oh, no, it's not, I wasn't at, I don't know anything of what you're talking about, and I'm I'm upset that you're asking me. Wow. Wow. 
but there was nobody in the house to take the thing that disappeared. So mom got a great grandma got a little smart and she started going into the room and there she would find everything and it was all under the bed or under the the the, the first layer of the mattress or be away in the in the tiny little corner in 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 the closet. And this this mom who's a great grandmother came back to me very concerned. Oh my goodness. We have a kleptomaniac. I have a, a son who was a kleptomaniac. What is happening? Is it genetic? I said, no, this is not genetic. Now, there are tendencies to behave in a certain way, mm-hmm. but the mom voice needs to straighten that out. And you, my dear, needs to be, need to become the mom. You have allowed for everybody else to step in and for everything to be an excuse. If not her great the grandmother or the school or the 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 granddad who won't step in but now it's time for you to say as a great grandmother and no this is not fair that you should be raising a child when you're in your 70s and somebody else should be raising her for you but are, are you willing to save this child's life are you willing to do everything that you need to do so that she is not destitute and out on the street, and has truly become a kleptomaniac and a compulsive liar and a criminal behind jail, because now we know that she can read and she can do things for herself. But the hardest thing to fix is going to be her heart and her character. Yep. And this is where you need to get strong. Yep. And what, what was the reaction? I assume you'd, have, you'd had the trust of, the, of this great-grandmother. Uh, what what was her reaction when you put that upon her? And by the way, I love the way you did that because you didn't actually put it upon her. You just let her know that it, but for her actions, some really bad things could happen. And I also like that you added that it's not fair because I'm sure that's what she's thinking every minute. Do I finally get a break from this? I'm 70. And your answer was in the end, well, not if you want to save this kid. No. That's no. right. That's exactly right. And then I thanked her because if she hadn't intervened when she did, Who knows where this child would be? And she was just an inch away at that point from just saying, you know, I can just take her to DSS. Why should I be raising a great-grandchild? She, see, and, and mom's not around. I can just have mom fill out the, 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 the custody forms to give her over to the state. And I said, thank you for saving her up until now. And understand that if you walk away from her, you have saved her to a path that nobody else has done so, so far. And that is to be commended. You're the only person who stepped in full-time, changed your life so that she could have a life. And I want to thank you for that because you're not going to get many people to thank you. No. And, and so then I had a little buy-in, and she said, of course I can't step away from her. It's nice to sort of think that I can step away from her but I can't step away from my great-granddaughter if it's the last thing I do. And that is when I told her, look, if you, can't, if you can't do this, if grandma can't do this, if daughter can't do this, just understand that this young lady has a home in my home. At the moment that you can't do this, I will not let your great-granddaughter just um, think. I will take her into my home until you tell me I can do it again, or until it, it's, it's time. All of the weight went from her, and she sort of, she, she just, just 
really had a really deep breath and said, you know, I just needed somebody to say that. Mm. I just needed to know that there's somebody else looking after my great-granddaughter and that perhaps it doesn't just have to fall all of this on me. Yeah. And what was really interesting is that from that, the story came out that she, the little the girl, had thoughts that her mom would come into her life and save her from all of the stuff that was coming, that was happening to her, and that, that people were accusing her, supposedly, of these things, and, and that someday her mom would come, whisk her away, and take her into this life that she's been waiting for all of her life. And I said, I am so sorry. I love you so much. But that's just not going to happen. Nobody is going to take you to that fantasy world. Your great-grandmother is your mom. You have her. Stop waiting for somebody else. God gave her to you and you to her so that you can be raised by her and so that you would listen to her voice. And that grandma just looked, great grandma just looked at me, and she understood that for all of this time, this girl had been living in a sort of a fantasy world where I don't have to listen to you because my mom is going to come in here and she's going to whisk me away someday, and she is going to, turn, to pull me back into that world where she lives, and everything will be just perfect. Well, Doctor Rose, you changed the paradigm in the end, and uh, in the end, changed everything for a little girl and her new mom, and a new reality in the end. This is Lee Habib. We love these stories, and we love having Dr. Rose on to share them. And I know there's a little part of all these stories in all of our lives, and we can't help but admit it to ourselves. We know it's true. We know people who know people who are in these stories. And this is Our American Stories. Thank you, Dr. Rose, for doing what you do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell great music stories, love stories, sports stories, anything and everything that stirs the soul. Take a listen to our Alexander Hamilton piece we did the other day with Ron Chernow. It's superb, and we celebrated his death. He had been shot in a duel by Aaron Burr in Weehawken, New Jersey, on the 11th of July, and died on the 12th in Greenwich Village in a friend's home. Astounding life that now more and more people are learning about because of a remarkable play on Broadway, which will soon be coming to a town near you, hopefully, if you're lucky enough. And one of the principles that our country was founded on, and that's why I talked a little about one of our founders, literally, was that the government can't seize your property without probable cause and due process. Indeed, it was the writs of assistance by the British colony that infuriated the colonists. They, they felt they could come into our, our homes without without cause. 
And that's the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. There it is in black and white. But it turns out that local governments have been seizing innocent folks' property and then burying them under confusing legal paperwork, so much so that most people just give up on trying to get their stuff back. And the car or house or money the police seize just goes to pad some agency's bottom line. It's really repugnant. And I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on, we do not do a political show, as you know by now. We're joined today by Judy Weiss and Austin Berg to take a deeper look at this thing called civil asset forfeiture. Judy's a brave woman who fought back when the local sheriffs took something that was absolutely vital to her and in the end to all of us. And Austin is from the Illinois Policy Institute, Illinois' premier think tank. And I'd like to thank both of you for joining us. Thank you. You bet. Judy, your grandson and you share a car. Tell us how him driving to and from work led to the police seizing what may be the single most important asset Americans have, and that's their transportation. Well, at the time that I was letting him use my car to go back and forth to work was because his car had broke down and I was trying to help him. I had a broken arm, so I couldn't really drive. And the night before he went to work to use my car, uh, I got up at 10.30, and he was not there, and the keys to the car were gone. His driver's license were laying on the table because I had brought them in from the car the night before after I locked it up. Well, I actually checked to see that it was locked. And that that was on, uh, I believe, August 31st. Um, I had a phone call at 1.30 a.m., from a police officer that told me that he was driving on a suspended license and my car was being towed. So that afternoon, or actually probably mid-morning, I called the towing place and asked what I had to do to get my car. And matter of fact, I asked the police officer, because it was like four blocks away from where I lived, where they were, could I come and get my car? And he said, no. It's being put on tow truck. So then I waited and called the tow place and asked them, "Can I? what do I have to do to get my car? And he said, it's being seized. And I said, what? And he said, you'll have to call the sheriff's department. Therefore, I went ahead and called the sheriff's department. And they told me that I couldn't have my car, that it was going to be seized because he was driving. Then they said a revoked driver's license. Well, he, his license were suspended because he hadn't went in and paid his fine for driving or something. I'm not real sure about all that because there's been so many stories put out about it that nobody really knows right. the truth. And so... Um, I just thought, there's no way. I'm making payments on this car. I am an elderly person. I live on less than $750 a month. I'm, I'm making payments. I'm not letting my car go. So I, therefore, kept trying to call. There was an investigator involved and a detective. And they told me that I would have to make an appointment to meet a special person down there to get anything out of my car, not to get my car, 
but to get anything. Therefore, I call and try to make an appointment to meet somebody, and they will not return my phone calls. They will not pick up the phone. I leave message after message after message. Finally, a, a little angel wrote an article in the newspaper, Rachel, and all of a sudden I'm getting so many phone calls and letters in the mail from attorneys that want to help me pro bono. I was just floored. I, I couldn't believe that there was that many people out there that really cared that somebody was losing something that they didn't commit a crime over. So I went with Larry Bandersnick. It wasn't long after that. It took a week, and he had my car back. But my car was gone from me for almost six months. I was paying payments and car insurance, and I was just devastated. I had no way to do anything. I was supposed to be going to therapy for my arm. I only got to go to that twice. My arm is still not like it should be. And Larry went, Mr. Vandersnick, went and talked to the state's attorney. Oh, actually, I have to go back a little bit. I went to court. They sent me a paper to go to court. And when I went to court, I had papers that I had to fill out from the courthouse, and the judge told me that my papers were not filled out right. And this is before I had talked to an attorney. And he told me that I, he didn't have to tell me what I needed to do, but he told me that I had to either deny or say yes to some of these questions and that I had to have it notarized, which nobody told me that at the courthouse when I went up there. The papers were given to them, and I I didn't know what to do then. That's when the article came out, because Rachel came to court and listened to the whole thing. She wrote a really good article. And that's when I started getting phone calls from legal people that wanted to help me, which just touched my heart. I, you just can't. It, it is right now. I just can't even believe it. Well, you know, and Judy, it, it touches my heart, too. But at the same time, what infuriates, I think, everyone listening is that but for that lovely lady writing that article, the lawyers wouldn't have known your problem and they wouldn't have called you. And you would have kept getting the runaround for who knows how many more months until maybe one day you would have just said, the heck with it. I quit. I know that. I quit. And by the way, we all know this experience with government anyway, where the, no, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. But here, your son's uh, driving on a suspended license list. How that car is not, not returned to you, under what legal theorem the state thinks it can take this property? Well, when we come back, Judy, we're going to be joined by Austin Berg, who's going to explain to our audience, or try to, how this crazy crazy mentality of our nation's law enforcement community can think somehow that our property is theirs. And when we come back, we'll dig into this story, this remarkable story that's developing as a revenue base, it turns out, for so many of our state, local, and county, and even federal law enforcement agencies. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. 
civil asset forfeiture. It's coming to a town near you if it already isn't there. More after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's Outlaw State of Mind. And it's not so good when your own government acts like an outlaw and just takes your property. And that's essentially what's happening here with some of these civil asset forfeiture statutes being enforced around the country. It's turning into a revenue mechanism. We just heard Judy Weiss's story about what happened to her precious car and living on a limited income, her grandson gets busted on some driving offense and driving without a license or driving on the suspended list, whatever. Anybody who has a kid has to experience this kind of nonsense. You get your car back and then you punish your kid. You don't get punished, too, by getting your car stolen from your government. And joining us to talk about this trend, the disturbing trend in this country, in Illinois and other places, Austin Berg joins us from the Illinois Policy Institute. Austin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Lee. Hey, talk, tell us about where this comes from, because it actually, the forfeiture statutes actually come from a decent place. When drug dealers are doing what they do, and they're hiding their money in various spaces, what we want to do is grab those assets so they can't flee the country. And so I think there was, a, in the beginning, a, a reasonable connection to this law. Am I wrong about that, Austin? No, like a lot of government regulations, you know, they come from a place of uh, good intentions, but good intentions do not good laws make. Right. So in, in a sense, civil asset forfeiture is a fancy term, but it really means a very simple thing. And it's that, as you said, police can seize your property without convicting you of a crime. And you're right to say that these laws sort of came up in the 1980s, and it was to whack mob bosses and drug kingpins and gang leaders um, to really hit them where it hurts. But now you see these situations where this is invoked, where, take Judy's case, her grandson goes to jail for for 10 days, and she doesn't see her car for almost six months. Um, it's It's been clearly uh, perverted to serve a different purpose. Indeed. And w- what are they hoping here in that six months? Well, first of all, there may be revenue from parking that uh, vehicle for six months, and that's probably a revenue split with the towing company because you got a contract with them. So that's one. And two, are they hoping one day that people give up and then they can just pop that car in one of those really great police auctions that I always read about that really sicken me because I know I'm buying some other citizen's car in a discount. I hate seeing those police auctions. They just, they, they repulse me. Mm. Yeah, so under Illinois law, actually, it can take up to 187 days 
to have a hearing on a civil asset forfeiture case. So when a lot of times you have people waiting uh, for months in anguish, waiting for their property back. And, and a lot of times, in Judy's case, she was lucky. She got pro bono legal help. But so many people uh, can't afford that, uh, and they just leave their property to the police. And in Illinois, as is the case in a lot of other states, uh, they end up getting a cut of that money, um, of the proceeds from the sales of, of, of that property. And so much of law enforcement, as we're learning now, and so much of the federal agencies, Austin, and this is something we'll talk to you about down the road, it's about the revenue. I mean, they actually brag about budget project projections and how much they raised from things like these. Absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of problems with this sort of policing for profit model, um, as a lot of people say. And in Illinois, you've seen in the last two years, $72 million dollars and seized property from from asset forfeiture. Now, the problem in Illinois is we are a notoriously uh, non-transparent state, so we don't know which of those, uh, how much of that money comes from civil asset forfeiture, where you don't have to be charged for a crime with a crime, and criminal asset forfeiture, where after you're charged with a crime, they can take your property. Um, now, obviously, that's the clear way to go with crim- with civil asset forfeiture. You have this whole notion of being innocent until proven guilty turned on its head. Right. Your property is presumed guilty, and you must prove its innocence. Right. And that's very hard for a lot of people, uh, like Judy, for instance. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember uh, this happening to a friend of mine who had purchased something with cash, and he didn't have the receipts. He had bought it on a trade, and there was a seizure in an in a, uh, apartment building where he lived in New York. And he just, he never got his property back. He just, he couldn't prove it was his. And he had to prove it was his, even though it was his. And, you know, right. that, that, is, that is a big deal. I wanted to read something that, that we learned recently. 26 states, Austin, allow for 100% of the profit from these forfeitures to go to the police department. And another 16 allow for at least 50% of the profit to go to the police department. So some take it all and some are on a rev share. Pretty interesting work if you can get it. Exactly. And it's really not a good use of law enforcement resources to be going after these types of cases. So you saw in Illinois, actually, a really, really odd case that's still going on right now where a state's attorney downstate, a state's attorney, a prosecutor, uh, created his own law enforcement agency basically for the sole purpose of standing out uh, next to the highway, pulling people over and seizing cash in suspicion uh, of drug charges. And that money goes to new squad cars. That money goes to trips to fancy conferences. That money goes to a scholarship in the state's attorney's name. Uh, this is clearly not not a good use of law enforcement resources, and it's a total. The incentives are just totally backwards and lead to really uh, disturbing cases like Judy's. And on the policy side, Austin, where where are we in terms of getting state legislatures? And and local uh, legislators to do something about this. I mean, is the public outcry enough, or are these such isolated cases that it's hard to ban these people altogether? And I also think Austin, there's a piece of somebody going, "Oh, come on, you had to do something wrong." I mean, why is your, why did the cops right. take your stuff? I mean, you know, in the end, the American people tend to presume you're guilty once once you're tied up with law enforcement, anyway. That's true, and that's why it's really important that people such as Judy uh, share their stories, where they truly 
were completely innocent and were taking, taken advantage of by a broken system. And now this is actually an area, reforming this is an area where I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about. You've seen uh, recently Nevada, New Mexico, Michigan, Maryland, all passing to some degree. Some have abolished uh, civil asset forfeiture altogether. Some have seriously cut back on cases where it's allowed to be used. Um, and it's a pretty bipartisan issue, as you said at the top of the show. This is left or right. This this seems wrong to to a lot of people instinctually. Well, the left, Austin, right, the people the right on the left, that. Austin, the civil liberties crowds, the ACLU, have got to be with, with you on this, even though you're, I would say, on the libertarian to right side in terms of freedom and property rights. Where's the ACLU yes. on something like this? Well, I will tell you that the the Illinois ACLU is actually a group that got us in touch with Judy, and I'm very proud of the work that they have done recently um, in bringing this issue to light and our group, which is uh, sort of a more libertarian, free market-leaning group, can really find some common ground with groups like the ACLU on this because it is a personal freedom issue. Yeah, and it's a Fourth Amendment issue. And, you know, I, I love it when everybody frames the Second Amendment. Oh, the Second Amendment's so dangerous. People have guns, they could die. Hey, you know what else is dangerous? Making cops have a warrant before they do what they do. But you know what? The only thing more dangerous than giving defendants some freedoms is giving the cops total access to our houses without warrants. And so our founders thought that was so important that they, 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 they put it into, they enshrined it into one of our fundamental liberties, Austin. I think it's a fundamental tenet of our justice system that you are innocent until proven guilty. And, and this, as I said before, is a total inversion of that. And it really needs to stop. Let me share two or three more things. Then I'm going to close out where we started with Judy. Uh, I have a little note here that says that criminologist John Worrell surveyed 770 police managers and found that 40 percent said that, quote, civil asset forfeiture is necessary as a budget supplement. It's disgraceful, Austin. It's just, they're even admitting it. It's got to yeah, sicken them, too. At a certain level, real law enforcement who went out to do good now have to sit around and hold up and hijack law-abiding citizens like Judy and take their cars. It's got to sicken good cops, too, Austin. Exactly. And this, uh, this policing for profit model uh, is, is really, really bad. I'm talking, the incentives are terrible. And you see, even if you talk to, I, I spoke to a few different uh, law enforcement officers in Illinois, and they say this gives all agencies a really bad name. It sort of dampens the legitimacy of law enforcement in a certain area because why, why did you take my property? I'm an innocent person. Now I'm not going to call the cops next time I see something bad happen. Uh-huh. Um, and the other thing is that in Illinois, you see not only now are, are law enforcement agencies dependent on this money, but the interests at play are trying to expand the people who are dependent on that. So there's actually a bill on the, on the governor's desk right now in Illinois that would let uh, law enforcement agencies use that money toward school programs. Oh. And as soon as you do that, once schools are on the dole, it's going to be very difficult. The more people you have dependent on that money, the more difficult it's going to be to reform the system. Yeah, you're taking money away from the children. That's what's happening. Right. Judy, 30 seconds or less. What do you have to say to the folks out there? Uh, you're talking to a, 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 somebody in the state legislature right now. Just give them a 30-second piece of your mind. Well, I'll tell you, my heart really goes out to people that have had way more taken from them and not got it back. There's so many grandparents that have raised grandkids that have been lost their homes. That's that's tragic. That's just unbelievable. And and it does. If I can help in any way, 
for somebody to get this law changed, that's why I'm on here. That's why I'm talking. Well, Judy, thank you for doing that. And Austin, thank you for doing all that you do. And let's keep following this story down the line. And ultimately, let's maybe pick on a few state legislatures this fall and maybe even a few state legislators and see what we can do about it. Amen. That's right. You bet. Thank you, ma'am. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Civil Asset Forfeiture, a story we're going to continue to follow here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we regularly bring you stories from former prisoners, and soon we'll do with current prisoners the same thing, and we do so because they're important stories, and because everyone in this country counts. You know, we just did Merle Haggard's story, and Merle met Johnny Cash in prison. Merle was a prisoner. Johnny Cash was performing for prisoners, and Merle talked about that life and in one stunning piece from him in his late 60s, he confessed to not knowing what to do with himself just a couple of days after getting out of prison, and that it was the loneliest time in a man's life, just coming out of jail, having civilians who didn't trust you, and missing the regular pace of life of prison, and sometimes thinking, my goodness, maybe I was more comfortable there than I was out in the, quote, regular world. And that was Merle never forgetting that. And so that's why we talk about this stuff, because it matters, and because so many families' lives are affected by this. And today we're joined by two former prisoners. The first was Shaka Singor to talk about his book, Writing My Wrongs, and that's writing with a W. And the subtitle is Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison, a book and man we heard about from our friend Newt Gingrich. And the second half of this interview will be joined by someone he's mentored, Calvin Evans. Guys, thanks for coming here. Uh, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, Shaka, let's start with you. We, we also tell a lot of stories about Detroit on this show. We've interviewed a guy named Zach Pashak, the founder of Detroit Bikes. And he's an immigrant who specifically chose Detroit to immigrate to and be a part of its much-needed revitalization. Tell us about your child in Detroit what was right about it, and what was wrong? Uh, when I grew up in Detroit, I mean, it was it was a great community. It was it was during the era where you know the black middle class was growing, and the community was pretty much thriving. But um, you know, midway through my childhood, uh, things began to turn around. We had factories closing down, people losing their jobs. Uh, we had white flight to the suburbs. And then we had the introduction of crack cocaine, which completely changed the landscape of Detroit's uh, culture and community. And it says in my notes that your life began to fall apart in part. Now, there were obviously external factors, Detroit itself collapsing and social forces coming in on you and the, and the young people there and older people, too. But your parents separated. And talk about that impact on you. Yeah, my parents uh, began 
began to go through a tumultuous divorce that started with multiple separations, eventually leading to divorce. In the midst of that, uh, my mother was, you know, abusive toward myself and my other siblings. Uh, and I eventually decided to run away at the age of 14. And 14 is a tough age to run away from home. And you had wanted to be a doctor. And I wanted to read something because, you know, you're on with Oprah Winfrey. And in your interview with her, here's what she said. And this is Oprah speaking. At one point, I saw one of the cameramen wiping his eyes. And this is because you had told her that you had wanted to be a doctor and weren't. My executive producer, Oprah said, Tara Montgomery, reached for yet another tissue after I asked Shaka, but weren't you the smart one who wanted to be a doctor before you claimed the street life at 14? Why did you want to be a doctor? And she said that you paused for 23 seconds, and that's an eternity in TV time, before answering. And she said it was the first time she could tell that you'd really thought about that question And you said, quote, my mother was always nice when she took me to the doctor. You paused. Your eyes welled up. I guess I imagined if I became a doctor, she would be nice to me. You you noted that your mom was abusive. And obviously it led to you running away. But what impact do you think it had on you psychologically after the runaway, Shaka? I mean, psychologically, you know, just from reading that passage, I think that what was reflected in that moment was the reality that most children really want to be loved and accepted uh, by their parents. And I was no different than any other child growing up uh, with those desires. And so when I ran away, you know, I was faced with the harsh reality that my mother wasn't coming to search me. Um, And as I saw it through the 14-year-old's eyes, I felt like she really didn't care. Uh, And so I began emotionally, you know, kind of put up a wall and psychologically disconnect from the idea that I would be denourished by the woman who gave birth to me. Right. And so I would assume a 14-year-old boy having to deal with the problems of the street and having, and having to and looking for love, ultimately the gang life, well, that's an option and maybe the only option for young men, particularly as you're getting shot at or getting roughed up. So many times I've known in my life as young people I've mentored in Newark, New Jersey, some just join the gang for self-preservation and protection. Talk about your experience. Well, in Detroit, we don't have a traditional gang model that, you know, a city like L.A. or Chicago has. Right. We have more of a neighborhood kind of street uh, culture uh, that's rooted in drug trafficking. And so for me, you know, I was easily... Uh, lured into drug trafficking by older, more seasoned uh, veterans of the street culture, uh, and largely because I was looking for that acceptance. I was looking for somebody to help me, kind of guide me through and you know life and navigate through the emotions I was feeling. And like many children growing up in these environments who run away, uh, who are extremely vulnerable, uh, you know, I got seduced into that culture. Well, and that's what we're going to cover in the next segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Writing my wrongs, life, death, and redemption in an American prison. Shaka Sangor. And later we'll be joined by someone he's mentored, Calvin Evans. And this is important storytelling. I know I have a relative who's caught up in the prison system. Same thing, drug culture in rural America. 
and inner city and rural America are having the same problems, the same dislocations, the same family breakdowns, and the same recidivism rates in prisons. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. The book, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison by Shaka Sangor. And where we left off, the writer is 14 years old. He's left home. A mother who's, well, let's just say abusive, to be kind. And he's out on the street. And though there aren't formal gangs like there are in the streets of Chicago or L.A., the drug culture pulls him in. The next thing you know, well, it's the gun culture. And the next thing you know, there's violence. T- take us down the road that led you to the prison system, if you could, Shaka. Yeah, so once I, once I got seduced into the street culture, uh, you know, this was the beginning of the crack cocaine era. And we were completely clueless as to how devastating this drug would be in our community. You know, I was in survival mode trying to figure out, you know, how to take care of and provide for myself. But within the first six months, I, I began to experience every imaginable horror that comes with the culture from, you know, my childhood friend being murdered to my older two siblings, my older two brothers being shot. And I was eventually shot, you know, several years later at the age of 17. Uh, when I got shot, I was taken to the hospital and dropped off by my friends. And when I got to the hospital, the doctors pretty much, you know, pulled the bullets out patch me up and within you know a day or so I was back in the same neighborhood and not once did anybody intervene and say how do you feel what are you thinking um and so I carried back to that community uh this volatile cocktail of emotions you know I was I was sad I was angry I was afraid I was paranoid and at 17 I just didn't know how to process that in a healthy way began to make it up in my mind that if I got into a similar conflict that I would shoot first as opposed to waiting to be shot. And what actual incident led to the prison time? Walk us through that and what happened. Uh, roughly like 14 or so months after I was shot, I found myself in a heated argument regarding a uh, drug exchange that I wouldn't make uh, to a guy I knew, but he had brought two people with him that I didn't know. 
And so we got into this really heated argument about the drug transaction, and the argument began to escalate. And I remember finding myself putting my hand on the, on the trigger of the pistol that I had uh, in my pocket. And uh, as the argument escalated, I turned to take a step toward going to the house when the passenger attempted to open the car door on, on the vehicle, and I turned and fired what turned out to be four fatal shots. Uh, tragically causing his death, devastating his family, uh, stripping his wife of a hug, stripping his children of, of a father and, and, you know, his mother and his godmother of, you know, a beloved son. And so it was just a devastating night, man, which was really a reflection of the cycle of gun violence. And it's one of the reasons I do the work that I do today. And so what's going on at your mo- in your mind as your sentence, you've got uh, you're looking at a 19 year uh, time served, 19 years of your life, but you don't know what you're about to know. What's going through your mind? Take us back there at that moment. You're about to be put into a, a prison system that you may not get out of for a very, very long time. I was devastated. Um, you know, I thought my life was over. I never saw myself being free from prison. Uh, I mean, at 19, you can barely think two weeks down the line, let alone, you know, two decades. Yep. So I thought that was the end of it. You know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen to me when I went in prison, but I just knew that I was never going to get out. And if I did, I probably would come out bitter and angry and institutionalized. And so that those were the thoughts that I had at, at 19. And so you go into prison and, during those first long years behind bars, I mean, you have two choices uh, in the end. You're going to stand up for yourself or not. And there are a lot of bad guys in prison. Not all bad guys, I can imagine. But talk to me about how you dealt with that. I mean, the prison prison was an extension of the neighborhood. You know, it was, it was guys who grew up in the tough streets of Detroit and Flint and Grand Rapids and other cities uh, throughout the state. And so, you know, I entered the space based on how I didn't live my life on the streets, you know, where you have to stand up for yourself. You have to make the tough decision whether you want to be a lion or a lamb. And I chose to be a lion in that environment and, and found myself getting in more trouble, um, ultimately leading me to me doing a total of seven years of solitary confinement. Unbelievable. That's a long time. The warden called you the worst of the worst at some point in time. But then came writing and reading and you actually had a real epiphany, I can only say, because it turns out reading and writing changed your life. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I was, I was fortunate. One of the things I was fortunate about when I actually went to prison is I had some of the most amazing mentors uh, that to this day, you know, I still look to for guidance and wisdom. And these are men who are serving life in prison and who are ultimately going to die in prison. You know, some of them have been in for over four decades now at this point. <clears throat> but they saw something in me worth redeeming. And they challenged me to read, and they introduced me to books I had never heard of, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Plato's Republic, and, you know, all these amazing uh, books that challenged the way that I think and, and challenged the way that I saw life. And from that, um, I also ended up getting a letter from my son who was describing what it was like for him to learn that I, I was in prison for murder. And as a father and as a man, I was devastated. So I began a journal to kind of challenge myself to 
you know, whether I was going to get out of prison or not, I wanted to leave my son a positive legacy. And through journaling, I realized that I was a pretty decent writer. Um, and so I challenged myself to start writing books, and, and that's where my journey as a writer began. And what is it? You know, I was reading about Winston Churchill, and I know you're thinking, well, what, do I, what does my life have to do with Winston Churchill? But he was going through a war himself, and it was the Nazis. And the Nazis were attacking England, and England was losing its spirit. They were surrounded by U-boats on the left. The entire European continent had been taken down. And he took to painting, of all things, because he said it was painting that saved his life. He would have given up, he said. He would have lost hope. And somehow, by painting, he felt connected to the universe. He felt at peace. He felt whole. He felt as if he was a human being. Talk about this thing, reading. And, and by the way, you didn't get this when you were a kid. And so many of us take for granted the fact that we're raised in homes where there are books, where there's reading, and this part of ourselves is stimulated. Uh, talk about this. Where, where, where did it bring you personally as you read these books? You know, I'm a very avid reader. Uh, when I was inside, I've read upwards of maybe 1,500 books in every genre you could think of. And it was just, you know, the, the, the escape through the written word and the ability to challenge myself to grow as a human being. Like, there was nothing more magical than those moments when I spent between the pages of a book because they were opening up spaces inside of me that I didn't even know existed. Uh, one of the things that I absolutely loved memoirs and autobiographies because it allowed me to live vicariously through people who had came before me and kind of learn from their life lessons. And, you know, the writing process itself was, was meditative and therapeutic in the sense that it allowed me to see myself clearly on page. Uh, but it also allowed me to challenge what I really believed about myself and to identify the difference between my perceived and my authentic self. And, you know, I, I'm a I'm an advocate for literature, um, advocate for literacy, which is really, really important because the average reading grade level in prison is third grade. And so those things um, just challenge me to, to continue to grow and evolve as a writer and as a thinker. Well, and I think as a human being, Shaka, and when we come back, a little bit more about that writer's life, a little bit more about mentorships, and then we're going to bring in Calvin Evans, the book. Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. The author, Shaka Sangor. And let me tell you about reading in my life. It always gave me what I like to consider powers of empathy. When you're reading a great book, you actually walk in another person's shoes. And it allows you to see life differently. And it expands your own vision of humanity. And so what a great, what a great testimonial to the power of reading and literacy by a man who discovered reading and literacy in the most unlikely of places, behind bars, alone. While reading, we have to do alone anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More on this great American story after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the book we're featuring today is a heck of a story, as good a story as we've stumbled upon since we began doing this broadcast. Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison by Shaka Sanhor. Sanghor. And we're going to be joined in a minute and a moment by Calvin Evans, uh, a gentleman that Sanghor is mentoring. And we just learned that this young man had mentors in prison. And he learned about life and about redemption through literature. I wanted to dig into one book in particular, read a letter and talk a little about prison reform, and then we want to bring in Calvin into this conversation. Malcolm X's autobiography. What did that mean to you, Shaka? I mean, that's the that's the standard, you know, for redemption inside America's prison system. Uh, you know, when you hear Malcolm X, most people, because of the way he's been portrayed in American society, just think, you know, straight black nationalist. But when you read the autobiography, you realize that he was a very disciplined man and a profound intellectual. And that book inspired me to really read, you know, everything I can get my hands on. You know, I mean, Malcolm read the dictionary from A to Z, and he mastered the language. And it was through that process that he began to uh, turn his life around. And so what I saw, you know, in that story was the most human aspect of who we are, and that's the ability to redeem ourselves no matter what the circumstance is, if we're willing to put in the work. And, you know, that book is still the test of time and stand as a testament of personal redemption in, inside of American prison. And I wanted to share just one piece of writing. It took her six years to have enough strength to write you and tell you that she loves you and forgives him. And this is from the uh, godmother and aunt of your victim. And it was truly, I just feel that I was led to write that letter I was still in a lot of pain and hurting when I wrote the letter, but I also knew that I'm a Christian and it was what I should do. And it might be the only hope for somebody who at a young age was in jail and might be despondent. What did receiving something like that mean to you? You know, when I first got that letter, I realized that I was not emotionally evolved enough to really uh, accept the grace of forgiveness and that I really needed to take a long, hard look at myself because she wrote the letter with, with just so much love and, and, and compassion and empathy and understanding of who I was as a 19 year old that it made me actually look at myself uh, from, through a very different lens. And that was just one of the, the, the pivotal moments in my life um, in terms of me beginning to look to myself to actually forgive myself for poor decisions I had made, but also to learn to love myself. That's beautiful. And tell us about your personal experience now. Uh, you you got this remarkable change in your life through reading. And now you're out and you're trying to change the criminal justice system. And talk about prison reform. We're having the, the strangest and most beautiful alliances from both the left side of the political aisle and the right. People like Van Jones and Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers joining together to say, hey, there's something wrong here. Some bad guys need to be locked up for a really long time. Some bad guys don't. And some people aren't even that bad. And they just got tripped up in the system. And let's shake this up and let's figure it out. Let's talk about that if you could. Yeah, so, I mean, when when I got out of prison, people was like, you know, just kind of go quietly out there and, and, and move on with your life and don't look back. 
And when you think about having served 20 years, that, that seems like a logical um, outcome for anybody walking out of that environment. But for me, it was really important to utilize my voice and my experience and what I witnessed while I was inside to, you know, shed light on, onto America's prison system. I mean, we have the largest prison system in the world. We are 5% of the world's population, 25% of the incarcerated people in the world are actually here in America. And so I couldn't, you know, walk out of prison and, and not honor the men that I left behind by sharing my story, which is their story by extension, because I realized this this, this really powerful thing. And that thing is that human beings by nature are redeemable. And the men that I left behind, I saw redemption in them through the work that they were doing on, on the inside to prepare themselves for life on the outside, even when they didn't know if they were ever getting out of prison. And so when we think of our system, we house, you know, thousands of men and women who have mental illness because we've criminalized mental illness. And that's a major, major thing uh, when you think about families that are impacted by schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and other uh, psychological disorders. And because of their behavior in society, uh, they end up in prison and they end up extremely and exceptionally vulnerable. And so it was really, you know, it's really important for us to take a look at these things. Uh, our recidivism rate, we have a 70% recidivism rate, which is really just a big fancy word for saying that we have a 70% failure rate. Yep. Because we're failing to prepare men and women to return to society as assets instead of liabilities. Um, and then I personally just think we over-incarcerate. I mean, there's, there's men and women locked up for failure to pay child support. Yep. You know, all these other things that, you know, when you when you think of the idea of incarceration, just don't quite make sense. So for years we've been on this uh, let's be tough on crime campaign. I just think it's time for us to wisen up and be smart on these things uh, because collectively, you know, we shoulder the responsibility of discarding human beings uh, who are languishing away in our prisons right now. No doubt. And, you know, when I think about reintegration, which is one of the last themes we want to get to before bringing Calvin in, you know, I talked about that Merle Haggard quote where Haggard said, my goodness, I'm not prepared. I can't get hired. If it wasn't for his brother hiring him as an electrician, Merle was sure he would have ended back up in prison. And that's just a white guy from Southern California. This is not a black or white thing. This is a prison thing. And we're not preparing our guys to come out. And I think all of us know this deeply because we've all watched the Shawshank Redemption. And we all remember Red. Remember Red? He's in prison all that time. And he hangs himself because he doesn't know what he's going to do when he comes out. He's so unprepared. Yeah. And so talk about reintegration. We've got about a minute and a half here before the next break or two. But talk about this problem of reintegration and what we can do to better serve the men who come out of prison having paid their debt to society. Well, I think it starts with us understanding that we get out of people what we put into them. And unfortunately, we haven't put much into the men and women inside prison, yet we expect them to successfully transition uh, and come out and play nicely with everybody else. Uh, so our, our reentry process is very anemic and is having devastating impact on anybody getting out. I mean, I came home after two decades to a very different world, you know, this fancy world with technology and all these different advancements. And so I had to catch up to these things relatively quickly. And I was fortunate because I'm literate and, and, and have a skill set that was marketable, but that's just not the reality for the majority of men and women getting out. And so, you know, we really have to think about, what kind of men and women we want to, our, to come back to our communities, because ultimately we're the deciders of that. And either we're going to decide if we want healthy men and women to come out, 
or broken men and women to come out who's going to continue to cause devastation in the communities. And I just think it's the human thing to do is to give people a real second chance by putting forth the effort to make sure that they come home healthy and whole. There's no doubt. And when we come back, we are going to hear from Calvin Evans and mentorship. I came to know a lot about prison reform through my hero, Chuck Coulson. And I have another hero who just happened to, I got, how I happened to go to law school with Bobby Ray Varner, who is in prisons every time he gets a chance, mentoring men and loving on men and then finding a pathway home. And it's ironic that the state of Texas and Georgia, and two red states, have been leading the fight, I think in large measure because of the, the nature of the Christian communities there who are doing so much outreach on this issue. And sometimes we have to credit people of faith for doing wonderful things. And so many of the churches in this country are doing some remarkable work. When we come back, mentorship. The men need it more than ever, particularly guys just out of prison. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in American Prison by Shaka Senghor. And we'll be back to finish out the hour right after this. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We've been talking for most of the hour with Shaka Sangor and his book, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. Pick this up. It says, moving a memoir as I've read, and I've read a lot of them. And now joining us, Calvin Evans. And Calvin, how did you come to know Shaka and talk about what you've learned from him? Uh, so, Shaka and I met in 1993 in solitary confinement. Um, and so, one of the things that I immediately took note of is that he was a very integrable guy. He was honest and he was forthright. You know, he wore all those things, you know, on his sleeve. And so, that kind of like had me take an interest in him. And we began to develop our relationship from that point. And I guess it's there's no better place or worse place in some ways to meet somebody than solitary. I mean, you've got a lot of time near each other. What what were you in prison for, Calvin? So I was in prison for second-degree murder. Um, I was actually in there for a crime that I didn't commit. I was a drug dealer doing the peak of the crack cocaine era. Uh, I took the cold of the streets like, you know, you get involved in this, you don't snitch. So I went to jail. I witnessed a crime. I didn't tell. And I ultimately did 24 years because I, I, I swore to the code. And, and so you end up in prison and you start to get to know Shaka. Where does the, where does the mentorship lead? Where does this friendship lead? Well, well, what it, what it led to is uh, me being able to now come out 
and become a you know um, productive member in society. But I think that the thing that like helped me uh, it began in prison. Like he helped me understand the holistic approach, like understanding who you are at the core of yourself, and so beginning to function out of that. And so from there, he was like you know. He would always be my accountability. We would always be uh, one another's kind of accountability partner. So it's someone who I could confide in, no matter how dire the situations may be, that, you know, give me some reason and understanding to, you know, those sorts of complications that you just naturally run into in life. And so now you're, you're ready to leave prison and talk to us about, well, what it's like. You know, I talked to you about what Merrill Haggard said about leaving prison and going out to civilian life. What were you worried about as you were about to leave a place you had come to know for a very long time, habits, routines, and now you're walking out into what some people call the civilian world? So, um, I didn't, I don't think that I was necessarily worried about anything because I, in the process that um, I had committed myself to, I was anticipating more so uh, than worrying. I was anticipating um, me being able to execute and what execute, executing uh, looked like. What what did that actually look like? And so having someone like Shaka who I communicated with throughout this process allowed me, you know, the opportunity to relax, if you will, because I had someone who I could trust who had been out three years prior to my coming out. And that was kind of like the, 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 the cure-all for me. And what a difference that had to make in your life. How many inmates and prisoners do you think have that expectation? Rather than worry, they're sort of looking, not maybe looking forward, but looking, looking to the next phase of their life with some expectancy and possibly even some excitement. So um, during a period of my incarceration, there, there are a number of individuals, well, I'd say probably less than 1% of the individuals who uh, think about in terms of their families, but their, their ideal in terms of their family, uh, helping them get a job and things of that, that nature is quite different from um, uh, the idea of having someone who's been through the condition, but not only been through the condition, have also made a reentry into society, and he understands both elements, if you will, so he can give you these pointers so where you can, you know, you can build a life in a meaningful way. Right. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting is you talk about how your drug skills, the skills you used in the drug trade, and those are real skills, by the way. I've always thought, well, those are some business skills people are learning, buying, selling, taking care of the customer, protecting the customer, keeping the customer safe. Talk about how those skill sets you learned in some ways on the street helped you land a legal job at Urban Ashes. Um, so, well, well, with Urban Ashes, uh, I'm the HR. I work for the HR department, and so what actually it did for me, it it it, it helped me to organize who it is that I was. I was organizing a drug game, and so not quite naturally, you put me in any company, I will be able to organize it especially when those companies are dealing with the expelling labor pool, which is the, um, which is directly where I come from. So urban ashes hire prisoners from the expelling labor pool and I'm able to manage them because I've been a part of that 
you know, that lifestyle my whole life. So those organization skills from um, from the streets, from selling drugs, transferring over into prison, and now it's transferring over into, you know, my daily my daily job, the way I, I, I get my career opportunities. And networking is a really part of this, too. And what you're trying to do, I can only assume safely, is to build networks for peer-to-peer counseling so more prisoners can have the similar experience you had with Shaka. Yeah, so Shaka and I talked about this prior to our release. So we were going to be each other accountability partners, and what we would do is make it more meaningful and effective for everyone who was to come out after us. So I'm in the phase of developing a program. It's called Exit Us, and what Exit Us do is actually go inside the prison. We'll go inside the prison. That's the phase one part of it, and we'll train individuals who have been uh, been incarcerated. We'll train and certify them so they can teach subject matters. And um, after these, they'll assess these individuals who are returning, and those individuals who meet the bill, they will enter into phase two of the program. Phase two of the program will be we will utilize all our resources in order to help you effectively transition into society, but moreover, to become a mentor yourself as well. And then we'll attempt to try, well, we'll begin to stop or have an impact on the, the prison, the playground, the prison pipeline, but by um, showing, uh, utilizing individuals who've been through the conditions, if you will. But in, in phase three, we will get them uh, meaningful and gainful employment opportunities. So we'll do, we'll, we'll help individuals get everything that, you know, your average normal citizen should have in order to be a productive citizen in society. Now, Calvin, I'm going to speak for some people who are listening who are also worried about what happens when some of the folks who come out don't integrate well, or you start to get cues that some of the guys or some of the gals are having a still a foot stuck inside the old crime life. What happens then, and has it happened, and what do you do about it if it does? So... You know, um, quickly what I've learned is that individuals who are of the same mindset in which you are, they'll distance themselves. Yep. You know, they'll they'll remove themselves away from what it is that you're presenting. So everything is about the individual. You owning up to who it is that you are, what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And so when you state that steadfast, it tends to produce the energy necessary to help others stay steadfast. So... Um, we, we know we're going to have some shortcomings. We know we're going to have some failures, but the idea is to make sure that we connect with everyone that is interested and to, to, and interested in helping individuals to make these changes, to be able to make these changes. We're just connecting individuals with the resources and then mixing them through the process. And when they don't want to be a part no more, they won't be a part, you know, they will remove themselves. Yeah. And I think a natural sorting process occurs. That's what's happened in my life in the, organizations I've been a part of and the people I've thought really did a great job of mentoring, they've always just said, this all sorts itself out. But I had to ask the question, Calvin. The last question, in terms of this 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 knowledge of a felony record, what can be done that would make, I think, the balancing of the public's need to know with the prisoner's right to move on in his life, how much does that felony record impact the ability to get hired and reintegrated. Talk about that. Well, it it, 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 it impacts individuals drastically because um, the perception. Um, 
we have done a good time. Society has done a good job saying that um, once a person a criminal, he's always a criminal. But what they don't realize, what society doesn't realize, is that 95% of the people who uh, are incarcerated will one day return to society. So it is our responsibility on how these individuals return. And so what to me, what that means is that we have to be active in the process of helping individuals return. And you have to take individuals such as Shaka, such as myself. There are many of us across the country that have made this transition. And how we have been able to effectively uh, make this tra these transitions, uh, this transition is by not allowing someone to continue to convict us. Like, we own our, we own the crime, we own the time that we've done. And so we're trying to move forward with our life, and that's what we should be doing, helping other individuals move forward in their lives as well. Dr. Martin Luther King said that we're nothing until the least of us are something. And Calvin, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks, Shaka, for us as well. The book, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We'll be right back. 